Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest today is Karen Swallow Pryor. Karen is an award-winning professor of English at Liberty University. She's the author of several books, numerous scholarly articles, and she just wrote a really interesting piece for Christianity Today entitled How to Love Your Ideological Enemy, which is why I contacted her to chat. It's a really interesting piece, and it was a really interesting conversation. I give you Karen Swallow Pryor. Karen, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I'm going to have to have you back again, too, because I reached out to you because of this wonderful piece written in Christianity Today, and then I started reading all the stuff you've read, and I'd love to have you back to just talk about literature. <laughs> oh, anytime, anytime. <laughs> and you are a professor of English at Liberty University. Yes. You are an animal lover. I, I you, you are on the Faith Advisory Board of the National Humane Society. Yes. That is beautiful. I'm a huge dog lover. I have two rescue pit bulls. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I'm, yeah, I love all animals, but I definitely, dogs are at the top of the list. So I've got a German short-haired pointer and a Weimaraner. Oh, wow. Both yeah. great breeds. Yeah, they Both are. Both great breeds. That's awesome. I'm and hoping they'll be quiet for the next 45 minutes or so, but my I God. have to keep my dogs upstairs and the door is shut. <laughs> they would love to be down here, though. But they would probably be pretty quiet if they're down here. But yeah, dogs, I think, are, it's a great analogy for the image of God, right? Because it's like something that's like adopted into another species realm mm -hmm. that can read our emotions in the way that like wolves, their closest genetic ancestor can't and chimps can't. I mean, it's really weird how how much they are like us because of sort of being grafted into our social world. Right. No, exactly. I think of it that way. There, there's God and then there's animals and we're like in the middle. So I, I think of, you know, we are to God as animals are to us. Right? You're the only other, like I think about the image of God in the talks. You're the only person I've said that to that's made immediate sense to. I, yeah. I'll have to send you a, an article I wrote a long time ago on the, on the loss of one of my dogs. And it has one of, it's one of my favorite articles. And I, I say something along those lines. It's just, it's very otherworldly and same world. And like we're sharing this world. Yeah, it's yeah, it it's is. Amazing. I think about it, like, it is like of all the like animal life that God could have said, okay, I'm pulling you into my relational world, and it changes yeah. us. I feel like the same thing we've done with dogs, horses too, maybe, but because we don't cuddle and sleep with them, right? It's a different right. kind of relationship, right? And cats, mm, yeah, really. cats, cats and dogs are different kind yeah. of, um, yeah, you know. yeah. Dogs are amazing. Yeah, what is it? there's a great quote from um, Dorothy Sayers on dogs, which I cannot remember now. Um, Anyway, it's really good about the mystery of God and dogs. And yeah, I just and, mangled that, but. That's mystery, God, dogs. <laughs> yeah, dogs. That's all, yeah. that's life. That's, <laughs> yeah. uh, now, and before I talk to you, I have to ask you about the commencement last week. Were you, were you at the commencement when Donald Trump yes. spoke? I, my favorite part of that was when he turned around, Jerry, all these teams. Should I read out the football teams? Auburn, Jerry. Are you sure you know what you're doing, Jerry? All these big guys. I mean, Army. We're going to play Army. Who am I going to root for there, Jerry? <laughs> and I was like, he's really reading the football schedule. <laughs> well, you know, that is so funny because, um, first of all, you do a great imitation of his voice. But second of all, I am not a sports fan at all. But that was my favorite part, too. It was that charming. Was like, it was. It was. so. I was... 
it, I was laughing. It was, it was really human. It was a very human moment. And I, that was my favorite part. I, it's funny. Things, I'm really, yeah, I just watched it again today before I talked about it. Cause I, I was playing for my wife. My wife was laughing. Cause she, we watched it together last week. It is, but it was like this. It, I, I mean, people seemed to immediately connect. I and mean, I thought like that was a very, uh, you know, normal, you know, it seemed like most of it was written by someone else. Uh, I mean, for Trump, it was Cicero. I mean, but like, <laughs> right, 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 but, right. But that part, no, it was like he—he he seemed. People seemed to connect with him on a human level during that part. Like you, you could feel it. He seemed to connect with people on a human level. No, I, I mean, I told someone afterwards, a couple of people, I said, you know, if I didn't know anything about this man and I had just gone to this commencement, I would think he was a a funny, normal human being. That's how he came across. It was really nice. You know, I, see, people have written about this recently. That there's this kind of divide in evangelicalism that that people that are you're kind of i mean i like look, i don't want to uh, stereotype you but the christian intellectuals that write for publications like christianity today and other sort of reflective pieces have tended to not uh, be have much sympathy to donald trump you know in the primaries and even ongoing have been very ambivalent about him and his presidency but then the rank and file folks you know, the more populist and popular circles have been very enthusiastically supporting. Do you see that being an evangelical institution? Do you see some of that divide among folks? I, I don't know. Like, I don't know how it breaks down at Liberty, if it would be more students or uh, different demographics. But do you, do, you, do you find a palpable kind of difference in the way people are reacting and receiving the, reacting to receiving the Trump presidency? Yeah. Yes, I, I do. I mean, I see that divide. Um I, as more less so at Liberty specifically, just where I live because I live, you know, in the Bible Belt and um, and live among people who just, um, uh, you know, who don't like politicians as usual and like the idea of an outsider coming in and a businessman and so forth. Um, I have family members who think along those lines. Um, and so, I mean, it, it's it's just like one of those, uh, you know, those Rorschach tests or whatever. People look at Trump and see something entirely different depending on where they're they're coming from. Um, and of course, at Liberty, I mean, our, our president is was a huge uh, an early supporter of Trump. And and, you know, people are constantly trying to ask me what what might be behind that. And uh, I, I mean, it's, it's plain today, plain as day to me. I mean, the person that Jerry Falwell sees in Trump as the person who was at graduation, who was joking about football and was warm and friendly and human. And I mean, that's a side of him that I haven't seen and don't think is, you know, I, I, I overcome some other things that I see. But I understand how people can connect on, with him on that level. And that's what happens. Do you think there's the Cyrus factor? Like, hey, this guy, he's, you know, in the, in the, in the sort of rising fear of the censorious... PC nature of our culture in some, at least in some pockets of it, that this is a guy that's going to be, even if he's not really one of us, he's for us. I mean, what did Reagan say to the people? I know you can't endorse me to these ministers, but I can endorse you and that kind of thing. Like there's this, he's going to be our Cyrus in, in, in kind of the secular elitist persecution. Yeah, that, I mean, I think that's another important sort of dividing line that people who see him as um, someone who goes against the tyranny of political correctness and uh and, and uh the liberal media elite and you know there's a whole narrative uh along those lines that has you know that has some validity and um and trump is someone who goes against that 
narrative, and that's very appealing to a lot of people. Yeah, because it's just striking to me that this is the most secular president in my lifetime that I can remember. I mean, just somebody that just mm -hmm. seems tone deaf to religious sentiment and sensibility and just kind of, you know, but yeah, can do the, you know, two Corinthians, the spirit of the Lord, there's liberty. And then, but, <laughs> you know, it's a strange, but, you know, it is these strange kind of, you know, joking charm that like, hey, maybe he'll be our guy or something. It is a strange phenomenon, but. Yeah, I, and I think, I mean, there's just, he, even though he's not evangelical or even, you know, I mean, strongly Christian in any sense of the term, um, he still. He's, he would he, say he's very, he's the most Christian. I mean, <laughs> he's but, but, very, but a, very Christian. There's a, there's a whole, um, I mean, the, he, he, he befits evangelical style, which is about being big and being great and being new and the newest and the best and, you know, uh, dramatic. And so there's a whole history of evangelical, you know, the history of evangelicalism is rooted in those kinds of tropes that he uses and that, and the kinds of things that he stands for. So it shouldn't really be that surprising. Alec Baldwin said in an interview with Howard Stern, he said, you know, I feel bad for Trump because he's always that guy that's like looking for the really powerful word and can't find it. Like my people are the most uh, amazing staff. I mean, they're amazing, fantastic. And he just can't find the other word. He's <laughs> kind of like looking for it, you know, like, like where's like, there are thesaurus. You could grab a thesaurus, just like, and you can find other words. It's amazing. Or even just Google. Yeah. 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 But it's, I mean, obviously his listeners don't demand that either. So um, it's just a symptom of our culture. I mean, Trump is, Trump is the symptom, not the problem. We could talk about Trump all day, but that would be the problem of our culture anyway right now. <laughs> so, so, so we, we But it is connected to what we're supposed to talk about. It today, is exactly right? connected. Yeah. It is. The last thing I will say, though, I was watching Colbert last night and he was doing like this supposed Trump, the postcards from the trip, and he had one to Betsy Devos. Hey, Betsy, did you know Italy is shaped like a boot at the end? We should be teaching this in high school. Love, Donnie. <laughs> That's great. Because you can imagine him discovering that. I mean, it's a bit, yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, so did you, were you asked to write, you're writing in, in a series, right? That right, several right. women have written in for Christianity Today. And there have been some great pieces in the series. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, interesting, provocative, gotten a lot of uh, conversation going on a host of topics. So was this topic about how to love your ideological enemy, did you suggest it or was it, uh, were they, did they ask you to do it? Well, yeah, it's, it's, there's, yeah, there's an interesting backstory to this because it was a convergence of a number of things going on. Um, uh, for some time, for some months now, I've been um, working with some other women behind the scenes, sort of um, with some women who have, who believe in historic traditional teachings of the church and orthodoxy, small o orthodoxy. So we've been kind of discussing some of these um, issues. And then, um, so that's been in the back of my mind is, is, you know, that we need more orthodox women and their voices to be amplified, so to speak, because it seems like the voices that stand for historic traditional Christianity and church teaching tend to be male. And that of the women's voices out there, they tend to either just be conservative and follow the male voices or more liberal progressive and charting, you know, their own, own paths. Um, and I just think that there needs to be, you know, sort of an alternative out there. And so this is something I've been thinking about for a long time. And then after the series started with, um, with Tish's great essay on, on the crisis of authority in the blogosphere, um, that is, that 
really reflects a lot of these questions and issues around orthodoxy. And, and that was one um, of the they, most misin, like, uh, misinterpreted. <laughs> I had her on and she really, yes. she said them very kind. She's like, please listen to this because this will tell you what I meant. I, it was a very misinterpreted piece because she was actually kind of advocating a more egalitarian stance. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it was read as actually trying to suppress women's voices or something. It, it's a very, like, it was a very strange reaction to the piece. Right. Because I think, you know, a couple of, you know, strident and prominent voices um, picked up on it right away and took it as a personal attack against them. And, and, and right, you're right, the entire argument was missed, which was an argument for the church, regardless of, of denomination or background, because um, obviously Tish comes from a you know an Anglican church background with with, with more hierarchy and uh, structure in place than most evangelical churches have. But she was arguing that churches invest women with more authority and more you know in whatever way that that might take place, so that the women so that women have um, have the foundation of of whatever their church is behind them as part of their platform, part of their their voices. And, um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of people missed that. They saw it as an attack and, and then, you know, those things on social media snowball. And so it got entirely sort of take it spun out of control. And, and in the, in a conversation uh, about that and about platform in general that had sort of preceded that, um, that I was involved in, um, that was one of the tweets that I, that I put out there was that, um, was about how, the or, you know, orthodox teaching is losing many women because there seems to be this false dichotomy between either being, you know, being orthodox and hateful or being loving and unorthodox. And so I think that we who are holding to historic church, church teaching need to be loving and hospitable and show that we don't, you know, all the things that I said in the article that, um, that, that that's a false choice, that you can be orthodox and hospitable. Um, and we need to show people how to do that. So for the record, you're for orthodoxy and loving people. Yes, for the record. Very yes, controversial yes, position. Yes, I, it is. It she's does getting, seem to be. Yeah. She's getting <laughs> very, she's taking out some very controversial ground. <laughs> and uh, so that was really, just to get back to your original question. So the editor just kind of she saw me engaging in these discussions and she actually saw me saying something that I didn't quite realize that I had said. I mean, you know, she crystallized it in a way and said, hey, take this and run with it and turn it into an article. And so that's what I did. And you so you talk about a few things that you think that um, that need to be a part of this calling to be lovers of the truth and lovers of, of people like mm -hmm. in particular, you know, not um you say people who practice orthodoxy welcome the seeker and stranger. They don't read, follow, or speak to only the like-minded. They do not operate in an echo chamber. That seems so against the stream of where everyone lives right now. Yeah, and, and just to take it back to the beginning of our conversation with, with Trump, I mean, when I was asked by Christianity Today for my response to the outcome of the elections, I just, you know, my, my remark was that I that the presidential election was a referendum on the echo chamber and the echo chamber won. I mean, I really believe that we have two Americas at least, and neither side is, has even a clue as to where the other side is coming from. Um, the, the, our moral imagination is so starved and so diminished that people, you know, people who people cannot even imagine why someone might out of good intentions and well-meaning uh, motivations support someone like Trump and vice versa, why someone could have supported Hillary Clinton. I mean, I just find people who just 
either can't or won't bother to try to imagine how people of goodwill could take the positions that they that they do. And that it, it's just I've lived I lived through the culture wars of the 80s and the rise of the moral majority and all of that. I mean, I've seen a lot in my lifetime. This is the worst. This is really the, the worst in terms of people not being able to or being unwilling to even imagine how their ideological opponent can think in a way that, you know, still makes them a, a decent person. Do you think that that there I mean, there seems to be a relationship. I, I know it's chicken or egg, but of that inability to empathize with positions that are alien to your own commitments. You know, T.S. Mm-hmm. Eliot reminds us, right, that every theory is true from somewhere, no matter where you're standing. I mean, that's why somebody <laughs> thought it up, you know, and it, it might not. But uh, is there a connection between the lack of intellectual empathy, sympathy, and also this sort of seeing the humanities as expendable? I mean, like, mm-hmm. you know, it, 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 there, in, in, uh, there's in all sorts of corners of public life. Oh, we don't need the humanities. We don't need the arts. We don't need to study. I mean, I wonder, is there a connection there? Yeah. I I mean, I, I, of course, I always want to blame every ill in the world on the lack of humanities. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Climate change, lack of humanities. Monsanto, boom. (laughs) Right. I mean, in a a way, I think that's even a symptom. The fact that we don't understand the importance of the humanities. I mean, think of the word, you know, the humanities are the humane, the humane letters, we call them. And there's a reason why we call them humane, because they make us more humane. They make us more human. Um, And so maybe we are seeing kind of the results of the over specialization, the over overly skilled based technical technically based education, even for those who do um, go to college, uh, you know, we're more and more career emphasis and um, an emphasis on entrepreneurship and and specialization that has taken the well-roundedness out of what we used to call a well-rounded education. So I think maybe that's the big problem. Um, I rather like to blame technology and social media a little bit more, though, because I think our our thinking and our communication is all, it's all just, it, it's become shorter and less in depth and quicker. And I mean, when I remember, you know, now it's been a few years, but when you read something on the internet, it will even tell you how many minutes it takes to read it. Um, we just, we do not have the kind of attention span that it takes to read something in depth anymore. And I mean, I see this in myself, it's harder and harder, let alone sustain our imaginations long enough to empathize with someone who's different from us. Um, and I really think that the world of technology and social media has probably had the most direct and dramatic impact on this inability to, to think this way. Wait, I missed what you were saying. I was checking my Twitter feed. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think, yeah, I think that's, and also, you know, it, it seems like we get increasingly siloed, right? Like we, we live right. more and more. And even if you lived with, I was talking with David French the other day from the National Review, and he said, you know, it, like that, you know, even if his, his his area in Tennessee is probably seventy five percent kind of conservative, right? Say, folks, and maybe it's the minority of kind of liberals. He's like, but even if it was fifty fifty, naturally you're going to find yourself gravitating to the people you agree with, uh, right? Even if it's it, so, then it's it, and then it's sort of the reinforcement factor that your own passions for your own convictions that define you over against the other wind up getting more intense when you're with the simpatico people and it's sort of a spiral effect you know and then your social media reinforces it and all of a sudden you're everyone's in the echo chamber right i mean we have this natural human tendency that's always been there and always will be there but then 
when you have the algorithms on Facebook and on Twitter and on Google searches feeding you the things that you, you know, I've, I've just only recently saw that on my phone that when I go to Google, it brings up the news stories that, um, that are related to recent searches. So I'm like constantly, I get, I get basically stories on the Benedict option and Jane Austen. It's like, there's no other news happening in the world. Apparently those are the things I was searching for. Are you like, and, you don't know me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've got broader interest in this. So these, these natural, you know, these divisions that are natural to human nature are just hardening and deepening because of, of the way technology works. And we, we have to intentionally combat that, which was the point that I was making in that, in that particular part of the essay saying we've got to be intentional about going out of our way, um, to get out of our, bubbles and our um, echo chambers. Is that, now you teach it at an evangelical college. You teach it the largest evangelical college, Liberty. <laughs> it's great. It's, it's really great. Huge, it's the biggest it's one. It's huge. It's big. It's huge. It's from humble beginnings. Jerry Falwell brought it. It's, I, I love it. I love it. I love that speech. Uh, <laughs> so, and, and then you live in the Bible Belt. Is that tough? I mean, it, it, do you do you feel siloed to some degree? I mean, is there, is that, because you're obviously a person that she strikes me as having kind of cosmopolitan a cosmopolitan disposition like you know you 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 teach literature you you know you make a life teaching people how to see things through other people's eyes in different times and places is it is it a challenging is it challenging in the context you're in at times it it, it was um i mean i moved here from the northeast from new york um and it was really much more culture shock than i realized it would be it took me a long time to adjust to being in the Bible Belt and in ways that I just ne really never could have anticipated. Um, and but I coming here, I, I you know I did a couple of things to be intentional. I mean, I I took a um, side job teaching as an adjunct at a local women's college, a very you know liberal, non, non hostile to, to liberty women's college. So I would teach there from time to time. Um, and what, did, and did, what, how did they react to you? Like, oh, she's from Liberty. I mean, was that how, what was the, what were those interactions like? Yeah, well, the faculty really are fine. Some of the students were um, not that happy with it, um, but you know, I just try, I tried. Are the to, students I mean, from could, Liberty and from the Women's College both like, how do they eat over there at that place with hands, <laughs> utensils? I mean, <laughs> the, little, uh, yeah, is it so Morlocks over there? <laughs> it's a little. It's gotten less like that because a lot has changed at Liberty. I mean, when Liberty first started, it was very small and guarded. There was a you know a security gate and things like that, and and those things are all it's. it's it's changed over the years, but um, there definitely are bubbles. I mean, every every college does that. They call their college life a bubble. Um, but that was one thing that I did to be intentional, intentional about getting out of outside of that bubble. But the other thing that I'm doing more and more now um, is as I'm forging deeper relationships with my neighbors. Um, my husband teaches at the local public school. Um, you know, I'm really trying to understand um, the citizens of Trump country. You know, I'm trying to, these are my neighbors. Um, these are the people I go to church with, the people who drive by me in their trucks with their Confederate flags on the back. Um, it's a, you know, it's a... So you're you know, saying you don't drive a truck with a Confederate flag on the back? No, I don't. But I, I, but I see a lot of them. <laughs> um, Some of my uh, best friends are driving. Yes, yes, Exactly. Um, so I'm trying to, so, you know, it's so easy from the, the liberal Northeast perspective that I came from as a Christian to say, oh, it's, you know, I need to, I need to empathize and understand the liberals, the Democrats, the atheists, the LGBT activists. I mean, we must do that and we must. Um, 
but we also must try to empathize and understand, you know, the the working class um, Trump voter um, who and their worries and concerns. So the call is really the same. The people that I'm called to, my neighbors are different, but the call is still the same. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think there's probably a sense, right, in which sometimes the the ideological enemy, adversary, just the the other, whatever they are, it's different when you have affinities temperamentally mm-hmm. or even educationally, you know, like, you know, it right. just, it, it, what's really interesting, right. Is it, it seems like in, in demographic studies and things that I've been reading lately, the blue States live red, like Massachusetts has a very low divorce rate. It's a very low teen pregnancy rate. It's very, you know, and the red States live blue. I mean, the opioid crisis, the teen pregnancy, there's high unchurched populations, you know, the, right. it's the hillbilly thing. So it's, it's, it's interesting because on some level, maybe for, an evangelical intellectual, it's it might be much easier to be with secular uh, intellectuals because you have so much more in common. <laughs> it really is. I mean, when we first moved here, this is what I would say to my students all the time. I would say, I said, I really miss my secular, lesbian, gay, homosexual, liberal, Democrat friends. <laughs> I mean, it was just it. Re- there really was a culture shock in com- coming and living amongst cultural Christians um, who often don't even know. You know, a cultural Christianity is not even necessarily, um, you know, a cultural Christian has been so inoculated with Christianity that sometimes I think that they don't even know what real Christianity is. And I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I just mean that 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 that's is that's a bigger challenge to me than witnessing to someone who is hostile to Christianity and, and knows exactly where he stands in terms of the of the Christian faith. It's, it's a very, very different um, experience and harder in a lot of ways. Hmm. You also talk about in the piece, you say that those who practice hospitable orthodoxy are rooted in relationships because right doctrine is not disembodied from the love of actual people. And that seems like it shouldn't, be, again, it's one of those claims that like it seems like it shouldn't be controversial. Mm-hmm. And yet you had to write it. Right, <laughs> like right. your day experiences, this needs to be written. Right, right, and I and I, there, I mean, I I see that problem from both ends of the spectrum. You know, if I had a dollar for every time I've gotten, you know, sort of liberal, a, a condescending, dismissive remark from a liberal progressive, like, oh, well, if you just knew someone struggling with X Y Z, you'd think differently. And I think, well, no. But on the other hand, then. From the conservative side, I do encounter people who have, um, you know, take positions and adhere to beliefs without ever having known or walked with someone affected by that particular doctrine or belief. So it really is easy on either side to just take positions that are theoretical without having walked through those with people. Um, and the the evidence for that is, as in the Tim Keller quote that I included there, is you know, if if someone changes their position be, as a result of getting to know someone whose life is impacted by that, then that position was faulty to begin with. Hmm, hmm. You know, so if you if you change your mind, um, again, we sh- I mean, we should grow and develop and, and 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 to a certain extent and and our positions should be malleable and developing over our lifetimes. But, you know, if, if someone sh- changes their position on a controversial issue because they meet someone who's dealing with it, then their position just was wrong to begin with. You know, it, or it could have been the right position, but for the wrong reasons or so forth. What if it's on a third date and the person is really attractive? And I mean, it's got to be grace <laughs> for that. Like, 
Well, you know, there's a great one of my favorite Seinfeld episodes is uh, I don't know, are you a Seinfeld fan? Oh, yes. Okay, okay. okay. So, favorite one is when Elaine is going out with a really good looking guy who um, turns out to be anti abortion. <laughs> Oh yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah and Jerry makes her, you know, she she, he, she she thinks he's perfect, and then and Jerry says, "Well, what's his position on abortion?" <laughs> and she's like, "Oh no, I don't want to find out." You know, <laughs> it's just so funny. Remember, who she dates the communist. This is Ned, big communist. <laughs> I mean, I know you're a communist. Did you have to dress like it? <laughs> so drab. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and, and, but it, it is complicated, right? Because we are, I mean, it, I mean, we are emotional people. And oftentimes it, it's, you know, I always think if Augustine and Nietzsche agree, it must be true. And like it, often our, the will and the, the affections, what does Jeff Goldblum say in The Big Chill? A human being can get through a day without food or without sex, but can't get through a day without a good rationalization. Hmm. So, so, I mean, there's a kind of you that's like, well, our, mm-hmm. the reason sort of dictates us. And yet like, it, it almost seems like more like most of the time we're not uh, rational animals, but rationalizing animals. <laughs> right, right. And it, again, it goes back to our moral imagination. I mean, if we cannot, um, even if we, we don't have to have gone through every single thing in life to have a position on it. I mean, that's, we, that's just ridiculous. But um, if we cannot imagine or won't, don't bother to take the time to imagine if we don't know people in those circumstances, what that might be like or to find out by talking to them or reading about it or, or um, you know, I, I actually, I had a, a very, um, a very uh, a, a young man who's committed his whole life to fighting abortion in very dramatic ways. Um, sent me a message the other day and said that he had just done an exercise. Someone had asked him if he would ever could imagine what it's like to be an abortion provider. I mean, this is something he spent his whole life fighting. And so he took up that challenge and wrote a short story from the perspective of an abortion doctor. Hmm. Um, and it wasn't the greatest fiction ever read, but he really just doing that exercise, writing this story, imagining what it would be like to be such a person who does have good intentions and wants to do good. It was a wonderful, wonderful exercise and that's the kind of thing we should be doing all the time even if you know even if it's not as formal as putting pen to paper to write a story we should be trying to imagine what it's like to be the person who's you know standing in front of us in the grocery line with 12 items in the line for 10 or fumbling through her um you know her food stamps or whatever you know whatever the person is around us who's going through something we should be able to imagine what it must be like to be in those circumstances and to empathize. Yeah, uh, it's something yeah, we should be working on all the time. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. Rachel Maddow was on Howard Stern this week, and it's one of the best interviews. I think Stern is probably the best interviewer in media, but, and she's a fan of his. But she, he asked her about Roger Ailes, hmm. and she was hmm. so kind. And without hmm. dismissing, hey, look, you know, part of being in public life is we're accountable for, you know, the, the things we do that are embarrassing and shameful and weird. And also, you know, we credit the things we feel proud of. And, and yet she, she didn't speculate. She didn't want to talk much about it. I mean, she didn't dismiss it, but then she talked about, she's in touch with his family and he became a friend. I mean, she really, you know, he, she went to him early on kind of jokingly, do you have any advice for me? And he took it seriously and they developed this and he gave her all kinds of advice. Hmm. Stern was like, are you afraid that, um, he would give you bad advice, like "Don't wear mini skirts; that never works." <laughs> <laughs> but he actually offered to buy her. He said, "I would hire you and never put you on the air, just so I didn't have to compete with you because you're that good." 
And he's huh. like, I would do it in a second. I'd pay you way more than you are. Oh, what a great, he's like, it's Stern's like, that's what the, I always just tell the religious right when they were trying to get me off the air. You're raising all this money. Just give it to me and I'll take a break. <laughs> <laughs> but it was amazing her, her, he was not, you know, he was a person to her. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you talk about like not, that you actually say in the piece that, um, that, uh, you defend or hospital orthodoxy can defend and not be defensive. And they also mm-hmm. say you're confident enough to engage hard questions. And that's, was her posture. You know, it was, it was very, uh, she was going to hold, she has convictions obviously, and especially as a woman that in media and, and yet also she, she wouldn't reduce Roger Ailes to a punchline. Hmm. And that was very moving to me. Yeah. Hmm. And that's, I mean, I feel like that's the tone of your piece. I mean, you, you kind of want to hold the things in creative tension, uh, they're all important. Right. 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 And I mean, and, and, and I think Orthodox Christianity is lose. We're losing people because people have hard questions. And if they don't, if, if we're not offering them a safe space to ask the difficult question, I mean, I mean, look at Job, look at Jesus. Um, these, the Bible wrestles with some of the, the hardest questions imaginable to, um, to the human condition. And if, if we can't welcome those, then what good is Christianity? I mean, Christianity is, it reflects the, the truth of the, of the, of, of, of reality. Um, and the truth of reality is certainly big enough and strong enough to, you know, to entertain the most difficult questions that there are. And yet so often Christians act afraid or act as though, the truth of the truth of Christ rests on our human shoulders or our human intellect. And of course it doesn't. Um, and so we need to act like that. Yeah. It's interesting because I also watched Jerry Falwell Jr.'s introduction to Donald Trump. I'm not going to get you fired, right? Like this is not going to be like, I, I hope not. That's- <laughs> <laughs> Liberty is a great institution. The preeminent Christian institution. It is. It's the success has been amazing though. I mean, like it, it, it has been, uh, uh, like uh, uh, just i mean for a school that was found in the early 70s it's it's remarkable oh, it's it, it's just it's amazing I, I i marvel at it every day i'm i'm like i'm blown away i'm just blown away i'm so so such a fantastic place to work and i'm so lucky to be there but jerry Falwell talked about like the importance of the only thing basically you can control is your attitude and he talked about vince lombardi and you know like the like and you know i went to an, a christian undergraduate institution uh I I wasn't raised in the church, but I I, I thought it'd be like summer camp. I was raised in public <laughs> school in New Jersey, so I thought this would be like camp. It's great. Uh, and then I've done some teaching at those schools, and it's interesting. It's all like character and excellence, and there's not a lot of talk about grace usually as in the education philosophy, nor about the importance of justification by faith, so that our ideas or our certainty doesn't have to justify us. It's like when Jesus, you know, the, mm. the storm in the boat, and, and Jesus can say to his disciples, hey, why are you worried? I'm here in the boat. Where, where if Jesus, I mean, I was telling students one, one day, that we were, it was a group of uh, first-year students, and I was just like, look, if you don't have this, you'll never be an intellectual, because even when mm. there's no storm, you're going to worry about, and crippling, and say, what if the next idea comes, and it, it, it's like a storm, you know? So I wonder, what would it be like if something like the the, the the promiscuous nature of God's grace and the significance of being justified by what has been done for you, not by ideas or identity or tribe. How would that change pedagogy? Wow. I mean, it would just, it, it would, I mean, again, it gives us the freedom to ask the hard questions and to enjoy the process of, of learning to, to be, you know, I, I remember hearing about this um, study a long time ago about, 
children in a playground that had fences versus children in a playground with no fences. The children in the playground with no fence around it tended to huddle together in the middle. But the ones with the fence around it um, were all over the place. They're hanging on the fence. They're playing all over. They're playing in a more because when you have when you have that security, you have that you have confidence that you don't have um, when when you don't have the security. And um, I mean, I don't know, know why we forget that as Christians. I mean, we've, the biggest question of human existence have been answered and we know that. So now let's go out and enjoy all the smaller questions and grapple with them. Yeah, and you 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 quote Henri now and reaching Henri's book Reaching Out several times, and you, you talk about how in the end you have this great statement that, that hospitable orthodoxy embraces both openness and exclusivity. You say basically that that now it says the hospitable person wants to invite the stranger into the house, but doesn't want doesn't let the stranger rob everything because then there's no one you know like you <laughs> right. can't you can't be kind to strangers anymore. There's this kind of creative tension between almost like like a self attending to self that enables you to to open up to others. Right, exactly. I mean, you in order to offer something, you have to have something to give. Um and so to be a host, you know, it it and exclusivity is inherent in it. I mean, so there's, you know, so you you own something that someone else doesn't own that you can that you have the power then to offer to them. And the invitation isn't necessarily extended to every single person at the same time. Um, so there are boundaries in place, but it's those boundaries that allow you to be hospitable and to create that space for others to come into and to accept if they want to or not to accept. Um, so there's a there's a, a boldness and a confidence along with the invitation and the hospitality that goes along with hospitable hospitable orthodoxy. Are you entertaining anybody in the near future? Uh, well, we just had a whole slew of people. We've had people for weeks and weeks coming and going, and I think, uh, yeah, we'll be entertaining somebody, I guess, next month. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, I get, I got that from your piece that you really do seem to be someone who enjoys the kind of salon culture, having people in who feel at home and are able to converse and and be present and well, and share yeah. one with another, kind of. Yeah, we do. I mean, it's it's interesting because um, because hospitality is not my natural gift actually. Um, and, uh, where did it, how did it develop? Well, I think because, uh, you know, because we live, we live in a place, we live in God's country. I'll just be frank. We live in God's country. Hey, I grew up in, you, I grew up in New Jersey. I think that's God's country. Bruce Springsteen, well, no, Bon Jovi. That's more like purgatory. I think, um, <laughs> No, we live, I mean, it's just so beautiful here. And we, you know, most of our family are from the Northeast where it's cold. And so, I mean, we, we, we live in a place that is the kind of place people go to, to vacation. And, and we, you know, we have a few acres, we've got some land and space. Um, so we, we have, you know, by the grace of God, we have a place that, that people would want to come to and the space to offer them. And, um, you know, like I said in the piece, I'm not going to cook for anybody because that would not be kind anyone but um you know so so we have a we have sort of a weird lifestyle i guess with our animals and and working and so forth but you know the doors are open for people um and so it's just evolved into that even though my husband and i are both actually very private people who prefer to be alone um god has you know sort of shaped us in this way and um and we want to offer what we have and so it's worked out and we've grown through it and learned through it I've been reading this guy lately, Tomas Halik. He's a Czech hmm. priest who was a psychotherapist trained in underground seminary 
developed a relationship with John Paul. And he he's amazing. Mm. I mean, he's a missiologist for our time. He really thinker that interprets. And he still he baptized. I think I'm actually going to have him on the podcast soon, but he couldn't do it before Easter because he's baptizing 32 adults on Easter. Um, and this university parish in Czechoslovakia. Uh, but he says that what he he wrote a great book called Patience with God. Uh, it's a meditation on Zacchaeus, and he said that what he sees in common between fundamentalism and atheism is they're fundamentally impatient, especially mm. with mysteries, and mm. that 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 at the heart of Christian faith is 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 mystery. Um, and, and, and an ability to kind of uh, having to sit with that. He has this great ellipsis in the beginning of his book. He's quoting a Coptic layperson, but he says, um, faith uh, is patience with yourself. Uh, mm. Love is patience with others and hope is patience with God. Um, I'm going to have to get that. It's great. I would recommend anything he he, he writes. Okay. But, Patience but, with God. Yeah, it's a, okay. yeah, and he's written a book called Night of the Confessor, and his most recent book is is on is it's called I Want You to Be on the God of Love. Um, so kind of the faith, hope, hmm. love series. Hmm. But I mean, I get that sense from reading your piece that I, I couldn't help but keep thinking of of Halik, who says he was always called to the Zacchaeuses, the ones who were far off but kind of wanted to draw near. Um, yeah, I got that from you. That a call to for kind of patience, um, mm. and it sounds like you've had to be patient with what God has done in your life, you and your husband, like <laughs> forming you all to be hospitable, which wouldn't have been your first impulse. It's like, oh, this is how I'm going to envision my life to be. Right? No, it's absolutely true, and I, I think, um, well, my husband is naturally the most patient person I know, and I he he says I'm impatient, which is true. Um, but teaching- but you've got great taste in glasses. Oh, so that's an equally important uh, important uh, gift. Well, and I think this is why I drew so much from my uh, experience in teaching. I mean, you know, you cannot lack, you cannot be a teacher and lack hope and patience and love. And the, I mean, because the act of teaching is an exercise in all of those things, because we know that so many of the seeds we plant in our teaching are not going to take root for, you know, many, many years. Um, and so it, it's just, it's been, you know, a school for me to teach me um, these virtues of, of patience, hope, and love, because I, I couldn't do what I do without those. So it's the same thing in the Christian, more so with the Christian faith, um, to be patient and to let God do his work in people as in his timing um, and to let people come along as they will. Karen, thanks for spending some time talk, talking with me. Will, will you come back and just talk like literature with me? Absolutely. Absolutely. I would love to. I'll send you a copy of my book so you can read up ahead of time on literature. Excellent. I probably can even get your publisher to send it to me. Okay. Um, It's one of the only perks of being a podcaster. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for being so hospitable. (laughs) You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And do check out Karen's piece in Christianity Today entitled How to Love Your Ideological Enemy. And read anything she writes, really. She's a gifted writer and, and a gifted thinker. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, fare thee well.